We have come to our final message in our Reformation series called Alone. To review, uh, we have discussed, we have decided to discuss this because coming this next two days is the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them to the Wittenberg door to say that a man with the Holy Scriptures has more right to know and understand God than decrees of popes and clerics. And so men like Luther and other reformers, their whole purpose was to dust off this gospel that was clearly presented by the apostles. And they came up with what we're calling today the five solas. At the time, they didn't call them that, but they are very, through time, they became the five major truths, the five Latin sola only truths. First one is faith alone brings me to God, sola fide. Second one we talked about is God's holy word is the only authority for matters of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura. Pastor Derek spoke about Solus Christus, where Jesus alone saves, not a church, not works, but Jesus alone performed everything that I needed to procure my salvation. Jesus alone. Last week, Pastor Ken talked about sola gratia. Salvation is completely a gift given not by earning it or striving for it. And so today we wrap up with our last message, which is called Soli Deo Gloria. All glory must go to God alone. In my reading, I came across this statement. Listen closely. It says, Soli Deo Gloria is the glue that holds the other solas in place. It is the center that draws the other solas into a grand unified whole. In other words, glory to God is the final purpose of the other four teachings. To come to God by faith alone, through grace alone, by the authority of Scripture alone, and trusting in Christ alone, ensures that all glory alone goes to God. All four of those are for the purpose of the final one. So that we wouldn't take it, it would go to Him. And I would say, hear, hear. As I prayed, Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to Your name be the glory. And we're going to find out why in just a second. I started off with the first sermon, Sola Fide, and I gave a brief historical account. Actually, if you're at the Reformation Fair, we talked a little bit about history yesterday. And the idea is that from the time of the apostles to the medieval ages, the gospel started getting buried in what I call the rubble of syncretism and a rubble of sacramentalism. We talked about that the first week. If you don't know what those two terms mean, go back and listen to it. We have it online. Reformers came, and they came with the printing press, with a pen and with passion to wake people up to the abuses of the church, and they wanted to lead a reform to bring it back to a clear, simple, basic Christianity. Back to the gospel basics. And the most basic question of all, you can't get any more basic than this, is what is the chief aim or chief end of man? In other words, what are we here for? I was at the football game, watching my son's football game on Friday after the game. A friend came up to me and started talking to me about how his family thought church was a scam. 
They said, yeah, church is a scam. And his brother said to him, not only is it a scam, but all that's left of us when we die is six feet of dirt. That's it. So I asked him, I said, if that's it, why, are, why do we care about anything? Either God exists or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, who cares about anything? But if he does, if he does, oh boy, what is he like? And aren't we here for him? And soli deo gloria means we are here to bring all glory to God. From Psalm 115, through Augustine, through the apostles, through Luther, Calvin, even Jonathan Edwards, it's summed up in the Westminster Confession, 1647, said, really, you know what the chief end of man is? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here. Glorify or to bring glory means to make God large, to declare Him, to point other people to Him. And to enjoy Him means to actually delight in Him, not merely serve Him, slavishly obey Him, to keep him happy. That's not why you're here, so he'll be happy that you obey him. That's not why you're here. You're here to behold him, to gaze upon him, and to delight in him. David writes in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing, that I will seek after. This is, this is all I want. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Meaning, all David wants is to know his God and be in his presence. That's really what he wants. And the truth of the matter is, that's why you've been made. And you will not be truly satisfied until you receive God's presence in your life. You won't be satisfied with anything until you see his glory. But what exactly is glory? Because it's a... To me, glory is a really churchy term. Like, you, you know, I remember growing up with old ladies coming out of church saying, wasn't that glorious? Like that. That's a nice churchy word. Or, glory be. I've seen black preachers say it like that. What a glory. Glo Patrick, glory to the Father, Patrick. You know, so what is glory? What does that mean? Is it just a church word? Well, glory defined... Glory defined basically means high renown, magnificence, excellent scene. But with God, glory is a whole different thing than human glory because there's no one like Him. And His glory can't be compared to anything we've seen. Theologians like to use the concept of the sun to describe His glory. I think we have to be careful to some degree because God isn't some distant object that we can look through a telescope or we can evaluate and measure. He's a person. He's alive. He's untamable, wild, and dangerous. And He's here. God's here right now. And so we need to speak about Him rightly. That's our responsibility is to do, to do due diligence to present Him as He is. And so I'm going to use the metaphor, but the metaphor doesn't even come close to explaining him. So there's two, two, two aspects that this metaphor helps with. First of all, like a son, there's an internal 
power, an internal weightiness to God. Actually, glory means heavy. He's heavy, dense. In his essence, God is thoroughly, he is not lacking, he's thoroughly perfect, pure, holy, and good. But he's also fearsome and all-consuming in his perfections. That is why man cannot look upon God as he is and live. There's a theologian's name, Rudolf Otto, a student of Luther's writings. He explains his awesomeness by defining this aspect of God as the numinous. He says the numinous has three components, and they are often designated with a Latin phrase. Mysterium tremendum et fascinat. I know that sounds big, but listen real quick close to me. Mysterium means that God is wholly other, entirely different from anything we experience in ordinary life. Mysterium evokes a reaction, when I see it, of silence. God also is tremendous. That means he provokes terror because he presents himself with overwhelming Power. And then finally, God also is fascinans, meaning he's, he's compelling. He's compelling because he's merciful and he's gracious. So in a way, he's terrifying, but his terror draws me close because he's also good. It's odd. Actually, R.C. Sproul said this whole idea of Mysterium Tremendum Fascinans is sort of like when you go by a major car accident. You want to look, but you don't. Let me show you a little bit of how Scripture kind of presents this. Go to the book of Amos, chapter 4. I want you to see, to some degree, how terrifying God is. Amos, chapter 4. Amos was this hillbilly preacher, told things as they were. He's very, what I would say, he uses very farmy metaphors because he's a man of the soil. And he's mad. He's a prophet, so he's speaking on behalf of God, so God's mad. And who is he mad at? Look at verse 1 of Amos chapter 4. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are in a mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Why is he mad at cows? He's not mad at cows, he's mad at these women that are like cows, fat cows, who just eat. I know that's not uh, politically correct, but that's what Amos is a hillbilly. So blame him. And he's mad because these women are sitting on their couches and they're saying, bring us some food and drink. Actually, they're rich. Verse 2, the Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you and they shall take you away with hooks. Meaning, really, the Assyrians are going to come and take you away. And actually, historically, they'd put hooks in their noses and ears and lead them. To Nineveh. It's terrible. But they're transgressing. Look at verse 4. They're transgressors. They sacrifice to idols, so they're idolaters. And in verse 6, he's saying, okay, I want you to return back to me. And so here's what God does. Listen to what he does. So verse 6, he's mad at these idolaters. They're wicked. They're lazy. They're fat. They just drink. and are, get, They just are gross. Okay, so verse 6. 
I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. So he wants them to return. So what he does is he sends a drought, a famine, but they don't change. So verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were three months to the harvest. I would send rain one in one city, send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander, another city to drink water, and would not be satisfied. So what he's saying is, not only didn't you have a lot of food, but I gave you no water. And in an arid place like Israel, water is a desperate need. So God withheld water. But they didn't return to him. They didn't repent. Verse 10. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. So those plants that were thriving, I sent pestilence and I sent insects to eat it all up. So not only water, but your crops are all withering, yet you did not return to me. You're not waking up to me. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after a manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up your nostrils. So he's sending war and a plague. So people are dying. They're not eating. There's no water. Their plants are dying. And now their young sons are dying in battle and being taken away. Yet, you did not return to me. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are as a brand pucked out of the burning. So he probably destroyed some of the cities, kind of like the wildfires that are happening in California. Yet you did not return to me. So he, they are not getting the message. And since they're not getting the message, you have verse 12. Listen closely to verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. How can it get any worse? Because I will do this to you Prepare to meet your God. That's supposed to say, because you didn't turn to all these things, there's one more thing left. Me. Are you ready? It's supposed to bring terror. That... uh, The writer Otto says, the fear of God's weight can evoke feelings that at many times come sweeping like a gentle tide pervading the mind with the tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were, thrillingly vibrant and resonant until at last it dies away and the soul goes back to its normal life. But it also may become the hushed, trembling, and speechless humility of its creature in the presence of that which is inexplainable mystery. Glory also can refer, the second part of it, is to God's external magnificence. He is, as the choir sang, beautiful. He is beautiful. God is beautiful. Scholars call this, where the first part would be his essence, scholars call this part his effulgence. Effulgence is brightness taken to the extreme. You may be dazzled by it, stunned by it, or even overcome by it. God is devastatingly impressive. God is devastatingly impressive. In fact, any beautiful thing you see, any good feeling you have, 
Any joy you soak up in the marrow of your bones is from God. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father of the heavenly lights. How dare we think we did that? Any joy you have when you hold that firstborn baby, that isn't you who gave you that joy. It's God. Walking down a path in the middle of an autumn day with the sun blue and the clouds white and the the cherry apple red leaves that are hanging next to an amber leaf on an oak tree. Who made that? Just because you took a picture on your phone, you didn't do that. Did you see my picture? God did that. Every taste, salt on a medium well steak. Who did that? Just because you can put a fire in a barbecue, you take credit for the taste of that savory meat? God did that. This is one of the most interesting verses if you let it sink in. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even though we can't look at him directly, if we could, if we could look at God directly, we would never want to stop looking. He's that beautiful. He is everything we've ever wanted. That's what glory is. I want to show you something that's always, it's always fascinated me. It's the book of Job. Job is right before Psalms. And it's, it's, a, it's a passage in the middle of Job's speech, and it's chapter 31. And he's in an argument with these other guys, and they're saying, Job, Job went through terrible times. And they say to Job, you're probably going through terrible times because you did such terrible things in your life. I'll bet you're just a sinner. That's your problem. And so Job in chapter 31 is kind of evaluating his life and saying, really, I've been blameless. And look at what he says in starting in verse 1. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? Meaning, how can I look lustfully at a girl? That's what the NIV said. What would be my portion from God above in my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? What he's saying is, I won't look on a woman in lust because if I did, I would deserve punishment from God. He even goes on in verse, um, really verse 9, let my wife, be with another man if I've been with another man's wife. I deserve that. So he goes through all these things that he hasn't done. He, he's explaining his righteousness. Then you come to verse 23, and verse 23 gives the reason why he's righteous. It gives the reason why he's pure and tries to say holy. Listen to what it says. This is what the ESV says. For I was in terror of calamity from my God, and I could not have faced his majesty. The NIV puts it like this, for I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. Well, the NIV, NIV says, for I dreaded, I dreaded destruction from God and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Why, Job, are you a righteous man? Because I'm scared to death of God and his glory. He terrifies me. But he's also terrifyingly beautiful. 
Have you ever once said no to sin because you know there's a mighty God? That's what Joseph did in the Old Testament. Potiphar's wife hit on him. He said, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, God's watching. And so then when we behold this tremendous God and this beautiful God, what it does is it causes us to want to tell other people, and that's when we see it, it returns in glory. So glory is not just recognizing the beauty and awesomeness of God, it's telling other people about it. Mary said, my soul will glorify in the Lord. So glory is a circle. I see God, I tell other people about God, they see God, then they have to tell other people about God. And then the whole earth will be full of His glory. It's a circular thing. Well, the glory is such a difficult thing. How do I then adequately explain God to others? Definitions can only do so much. Ideas like mysterium, tremendum can only communicate so much. How does God personally show us His glory? This is fascinating. I want to take you quickly through the historical account of God's desire to show himself to us. If God is everything, if he's everything we've ever wanted, and God is good, the greatest thing he can do is show us himself. It's the logical, it's the logical implications of glory. If God is good and the best thing for us is himself, the best thing he can do for us is show him, show us himself. So that's what he tries to do all through the Bible. The Bible is revelation. It's his account of showing himself to us. In fact, Jesus agrees with this. One of them, it's pretty neat, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, one of the greatest things Jesus wants from, for us, he says in verse 24, is, Father, I want them to see my glory. That's what Jesus wants for us. So in order to reveal his glory without killing us, he came to mankind veiled. Because otherwise his splendor, if he just came unveiled, the whole world, the whole universe would be consumed by his amazing power. So instead of trying to explain glory, we need to allow Scripture to show us glory. So this is the progression of revealed glory. First of all, go to Exodus 16. The first thing we're going to see is God's glory coming down. Exodus 16.10 So Aaron is speaking to the Israelites after they just left Egypt. In verse 16, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, they're looking towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. It's the first time it says the glory of the Lord appeared. And how did it appear? In a cloud. If you go to Exodus 19, the cloud gets more distinct. And just, just let the Scripture speak for itself. Imagine what it says. Exodus 19, 18-21. Mount Sinai. Now, my, now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So God came down, but he was wrapped in smoke and fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. 
this? Could you honestly imagine this? And in verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. So he's saying, Moses, tell them not to come close to the mountain because if they do, they're going to die. And the mountain's shaking and there's lightning and there's heavy cloud wrapped in fire. It's the first way God showed his glory. Then glory came near. Go to Leviticus. Next book, Exodus Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 6. Not only did he come down, but God desires to be near his people, to tabernacle with them, to camp with them. And that's what's happening. Leviticus 9, verse 6. And so they're offering sacrifices in the temple. And verse 6 says, And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So you go to the temple, offer your sacrifice, and then God's glory and fire and smoke will come down. Look at Leviticus verse 23 and 24, the same chapter. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So they offered a sacrifice. There it is, on the altar, and fire came down. And they, the people saw it, they shouted, and they fell on their faces. They were in awe, but they were also terrified. Can you imagine? I mean, really, can you imagine that? Do you believe this? Like sometimes this, we, the Scriptures are strange. What would you do if you saw this right now, right behind me? What just, what just happened? Go to Numbers 14. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 14. In verse 10 and 11. So the people are rebelling. The people are ignoring Moses. They want to go back to Egypt. That's what verse 4 says. They're whining, grumbling, complaining. Verse 10 of Numbers 14 then all the congregation said to, the, to stone Moses and Aaron with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So here are these whining people who are not believing in God, are ready to stone Moses and Aaron. Right behind them comes the glory of the Lord. And in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, listen to what he says. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the things done among them, there is something terrible in the heart of men where God can show us amazing things and yet we still don't believe. We still want more. We're never satisfied. Then glory comes close. Go all the way to Isaiah 6. Isaiah, who's a prophet, goes into the temple. So you have the fire and cloud came down. You have the tabernacle where it Appears the tent of meeting, comes near, and now Isaiah, the prophet, goes into the tent and he has a vision. Isaiah 6, listen to what this says. 
In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and it was full of smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So what we have here is he's in the temple and he sees the king with angels. I don't know how many, but the angels couldn't even look upon God. The smoke fills the temple and his voice is like thunder. What's interesting, in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 41 says this. You don't have to turn there, but here's what John says. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So this is God's glory up close. And then go to Ezekiel, which is two more books over. And this is when God's glory departed. Because the people were wicked. Ezekiel is a, one of those books that honestly is very difficult because he sees the glory of the Lord to some degree. I don't know how it's a veiled glory, but he tries to explain it and it's explained in such weird ways. Look at Ezekiel 10, 1 through 5. Then I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. So there's cherubim again, there's angels. There appeared above them something like sapphire. So a sapphire, and it looked like a throne. What is, I don't know what that means. Verse 2, And he said to the man, Clothed in linen, going among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he sings. So these angels are flying, and their wings are beating, and it sounds like God's voice, so it must have been powerful. And there's just clouds and fire, and I don't know what else, a sapphire throne. But what's happening, we can see in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 10, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold, so it's leaving the temple, stood over above the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes. So they're starting to lead the earth as they went out the wheels besides them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate, so it's leaving the city of Jerusalem. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. And then you get to chapter 11, 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel is over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain as he side. So the idea here is it's starting to depart and leave to the mountain and exit. God's glory is leaving. He will not dwell with unholy people. And then Scripture says... There's 400 years of silence. God stayed away. Let 
Why should God continue to cast his pearls of beauty before swine? People who don't believe in spite of the glory that has been revealed don't deserve to see more of the precious treasure, do they? We live in a day and age where it's almost like people are doing a favor when they come to church to see God. It's just the opposite. He's doing a favor to even try to reveal himself to us. Who do we think we are to think that we deserve to see his inexpressible beauty when it's not even appreciated? So God departed. He stayed away. He hid himself. So what happened after 400 years of distancing? Well, out of his love for us, God decided to give us one more chance. And to give us one more chance, he decided to show himself in his most ultimate form of glory. What would it be? Would it be better than a fiery cloud hanging in the mountain of a desert? How do you get better than that? How do you top seeing angels? How do you top seeing angels in the throne room where the robe of the king is filling the whole thing? How do you get better than that? It has to be amazing. It better be. That's when we come to Luke chapter 2. And this scene is incredible because the heavens open, they split open, and a, uh, a heavenly host breaks through. I mean, when, it, when I talk a heavenly host, I'm talking a thousands upon thousands of angels. That means uncountable. That means millions of angels. And they are saying or singing, glory, glory to God in the highest. So what happened? What, what happened to make these angels so excited? If you keep reading, it says in Luke 2.14, Glory to God on the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15, When the angels went away from then into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. I would want to see this thing. What is it? What is it? Verse 16, and they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a cow trough. That's his glory? A baby? Yeah. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. There's four reasons why this Jesus is his glory. First of all is because it's, he's God in all of his glory. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen Him, His glory. The glory is the only the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. The incarnation is the greatest miracle. God, who cannot be contained by the universe, allowed Himself to be contained by the body of a child. That is unbelievable. It's un unbelievable. That's what we believe. Second thing is He's the light of glory. The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Jesus is the language that we can understand. 
Jesus spoke to us in our own language, in the language of a human being. He gives us light. Light gives us understanding. Oh, I get it. When we see Jesus, we see the heart of God as a person. The cloud and fire pushes us away. The child pulls us in. He is also the hope of glory. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the guarantee, especially through the Spirit, He's the guarantee to glory. Jesus is the first fruits. He shows us the way. He shows us the truth. He shows us the light. He gives us hope. That there's more than just this. And this is the most amazing. Hebrews 1.3, He's the radiance of God's glory. And the exact imprint or representation of his nature. Jesus perfectly and exhaustively displays the beauty and power of God. There is nowhere else to look. Nowhere else. Because in Christ is Jesus is God's condensed glory. Laser glory in that person. God was pleased to have his son to be the object of all our desires. Don't go anywhere else. Why do we so easily give up this ground? Yeah, he's one among all these other gods. No, he's not. He is the radiance of the eternal being in a, in a man. Our man. My man. It's amazing. But here's where it gets even more interesting. But Jesus, this Jesus on the cross is where his glory is displayed the clearest. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, would even go so far as to say that for right now, on this side of heaven, the cross is the only way to see God. He makes a comparison with Moses in Exodus 33. Remember, and Moses wanted to see God's glory and God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and said, you'll see my backside. And, Mo, and Luther says this, according to 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cross, therefore, is actually intended to destroy the pride of the arrogant heart. What he means by that is we think we have rights to see God as we are. Who are you? In the cross, God actively hides himself. God simply refuses to be known in any other way. Anyone who wishes to know the great God of glory must see Him through the humility of the cross. Not through visions of angels and being puffed up with the idle notions of a spiritual experience like nobody else got. Look at me. God visited me specially. No! But through the realization that I need God every hour because I'm a sinner. I've sinned. And that cross is my only payment right now. He is my only protection from God's terror. I want to show you something interesting in Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. It's the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I think this is amazing. The Sermon on the Mount is the, a progression of relationship with God. 
There's a progression Jesus brings us through before we can get to the greatest promise of all, which is verse 8. Verse 8 is the climax of it, actually. But you've got to see it that way in order to really appreciate verse 8. So this is Matthew chapter 5. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Verse 3 and 4 explains to us our deep awareness of need. So verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the idea here is poor in spirit, meaning inside my spirit, I'm poor. I have nothing. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. The idea is those who mourn over their poorness of spirit, their sinful nature, and actually realize that I'm in need. Then um, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, then the satisfaction of that need, 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when I come humbly, meekly, God is willing to give to me. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I want to change. I want your life and mine. So when I am humble and then I ask for him to fill me, he fills me. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy. He'll fill me. He'll give me mercy. And then he, he transforms me. Verse 7. And then you get verse 8. Verse 8 is the climax. Verse 8 is the result of being changed and transformed. And I won't get verse 8 until I'm changed and, verse, and transformed. What's verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is unbelievable promise. But we don't just get there until we go through the progression. Humility before transformation and transformation before glory. I want to end on um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go there. I hope you don't mind me taking you to a lot of Scripture. John Calvin would be proud. I'm doing it for the Reformers. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to... Um, I want to begin in verse 11. And watch, verse 11 is going to com be compared to the glory that Moses saw and the glory we have the ability to see and be transformed by. Verse 11 says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much will be that uh, what is permanent have glory. So what was going to be brought to an end is Moses' law. Mount Sinai is the law. Verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who'd put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze. So Moses went up and he'd put this veil after he saw God because the people would be scared to see his face radiating God's glory. And he had to put a veil. And their minds were hardened to the law for this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil, the law doesn't open your eyes is the idea. But through Christ, when he enters, is it taken away? Yes, verse 15, to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when we turn to the Lord, our hearts become open. We become transformed. Because, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Spirit of God enters me. And then verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of, God, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We, through the Spirit of God, 
are able to be self-fulfilling of the purpose for which we've been made, which is to behold His glory in us. It's incredible. We have been offered the opportunity to shine with God's glory. Do you want to? Let me um, give you a little illustration. Imagine, if you can, that there's an ugly brick wall. That's how we get transformed. This ugly brick wall, let it stand for a life without Christ. No hope. No possibilities. A limited life. Just, I just live this mundane life. I die. I'm just here to die. Six feet of ground. That's all I got. But Scripture, Sola Scriptura, tells me there's more beyond the wall. It's called Revelation. It's like a window in the wall. So here we have a wall, but Scripture, Sola Scriptura, is like this window that opens us up to possibilities beyond this life. That window is Christ. He's the access point. He's the door. I enter through Him to receive the promises that are given in Scripture. But I can't reach this window on my own. Not only am I too short, I just don't have ability. I'm, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm a sinner. But there's a strong friend who can lift me up. I can get on his back and go through the window. He's the Spirit of God. He's grace. I don't deserve him, but he will help me. He'll give me the power to do it. That's where grace comes in. The thing is, though, imagine there's the window, there's the wall. I can't do it on my own. It takes faith to step forward. Sola fide. All right, I believe it. Holy Spirit, help me. And he gets me through the window. Once I get up to the window, when all four work together, when sola fide, sola scriptura, sola Christus, and sola gratias work together, then I start receiving glory in my life. Galatians 1.15, Paul said that God was, was pleased to reveal His Son through me. Man, do you want that? And what do you want? What is your end goal? Is Christ your end or is Christ a means to an end? Because one person put it like this, when the end justifies the means, the means becomes the end. Do I have Christ so I can have other things? Because really, if I have Christ to get other things, health, wealth, prosperity, really health, wealth, and prosperity are my ultimate end, not Christ. Let me read for you my annual report. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it on the sickle because the harvest has come. Mark 4, 26 to 29. Kent City Baptist Church have been here 21 years of gospel preaching, two services a day, 700 people averaged each week. There's potential here. We are still spreading seed. Next year, we will keep spreading it. If God willing, we pray it lands on fertile hearts. That is what we've been called to do. And by His grace, we've been able to keep doing it. We are not here to run a business, nor to grow an empire, but simply to scatter seed. How are we doing? How are you doing? I don't know. Because Mark 4.26 says He knows not how. So we just continue to toss more and more seed. 
If we were a factory, what would we, what would we be manufacturing? Hopefully spirit-filled disciples who are obedient to Christ. But the tricky part of the production process is the ingredient of spirit-filled. Because you and I cannot control nor manipulate the work of the Spirit. Jesus says in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, so it is with the Spirit. What is He doing? Where is He doing it? If you look around the congregation, you might see a blade, an ear, even a full grain in an ear, but only the Spirit knows. So we continue to pray for more, for more harvest. The harvest. Murray Potts died this year. One of our elders. It was a sad and terrible day. But Murray was ready. I mean, really ready to see his God. For Murray, the harvest came early, but those who are reading this, the harvest is still a way off. But what happens when the sickle strikes? Will you be ready? Will I? The standard yearly report tells us of numbers, of programs, of balance sheets and budgets. But Murray died. It's not our job to prepare people for the harvest, to see glory. I think it is. And so honestly, are you ready? Ready? 